0: Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for June 2023, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our host, Dr. Jose Pereira, joins us for the eighth edition of the Palliative Care Journal Watch. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care Echo Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care Echo Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the view is expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Pallium Palliative Care Journal Watch. I'm the host for today. I don't have with me my colleague, Leonie Herx. Leone is very busy with clinical work at this time, but we do have two fantastic panelists, uh, Dr. Adrian Selby and Dr. Angaran Sinaraja. They'll introduce themselves very shortly. And the articles that we're sharing today were largely identified by them. And so we thought it'd be best that they do the presentation. We regularly monitor about 20 journals, and we look for articles that we think will either confirm ways in which we think around various topics, be they clinical, be they service organization or education, or articles that challenge the way we think about different approaches right across the domains, as I said, and this is reflected in today's podcast. We are sharing two papers that involve family caregivers and family caregiver experiences, and one, for example, on massage therapy. The Pallium Palliative Care ECHO Project is a five-year national initiative. And this Journal Watch is part of that initiative. It is funded by Health Canada. And the idea of the ECHO project is to develop communities of practice. And the Journal Watch is one component of the whole ECHO project. And we invite you to read up more on the whole ECHO project because there are quite a few communities of practice. And perhaps you may find one or two or more of interest. For example, there's a new community of practice coming on, on social and psychospiritual care. There is one going to be coming online looking at caring for patients with mental health issues. There is also a community of practice looking at integrating palliative care in the management of patients with heart disease and also one in long-term care. So I'm Jose Pereira and I'm Professor and Director, Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. I'm also Professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Navarra in Pamplona, Spain at this time. And I'm the scientific advisor and co-founder of Pallium Canada. And let me hand you over very quickly to Aingaran Dr. Sinaraja, over to you.
2: Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, a pleasure to be on, uh, on the panel. So my name is Ayngaran Sinaraja. I work out of Lake Ridge Health and Queen's University. I'm the division head here, and I also hold a research chair. Nice to be here. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Adrian, Dr. Sylvie, over to you.
3: Hi, my name is Andy Selby. I'm a palliative care physician at Queen's University. I'm very happy
1: to be here. Some quick disclosures. Pallium Canada is a not-for-profit uh, foundation. Um, over the years, has been funded largely by Health Canada. This is, as I said earlier, part of the ECHO program, and the ECHO program is funded through Health uh, Canada. I'm the scientific advisor and therefore receive um, honorarium or a stipend from Pallium Canada, And Drs. Selby and Sinaraja have no conflicts of interest to declare. So today we've got four articles, as I said earlier. And to get us going, I'm going to hand this all over to Dr. Sinaraja Angaran over to you for the first one.
2: Thanks, everybody. Dr. Pereira has already mentioned the themes for today. And so my articles are going to be focused on the caregiver perspectives and the research around it. So the f- this first one is looking at the caregiver's challenges in cancer pain management for patients receiving part of care. And we all know that cancer pain is a common symptom that we face. Uh, the majority of individuals with advanced cancer have pain, but perhaps we sometimes forget, I certainly sometimes don't remember this, That the Family caregivers play a crucial role in managing this pain for their loved ones in cancer. And so they need knowledge and skills in how to assess for pain, how to manage it, overcome their own fears about pain management. And the research around this is quite limited. And so this study looks at providing some more research base based around the caregiver's perspectives on pain management for their loved ones. So this study is a secondary analysis of a study of caregivers who participated in a clinical trial, a larger clinical trial that looked at caregiving challenges. Patients did have cancer and they were receiving outpatient part of care. And so their actual larger study was done as an in-person or phone interviews, and the caregivers were defined as anybody defined as caregiver by the patient. It was a qualitative study with thematic analysis, uh, and, and then they did that analysis, so next slide. Uh, so in the key findings, I showed that there were 40 caregivers that they identified. They looked at, in that larger study, anybody who mentioned things around cancer pain, and that's who they focused on. Most of the caregivers were older, mostly female, cocaine. Asian spouses or parents and college educated, and they spent more than 20 hours a week caregiving for more than a year. When you look at the patients themselves, they were a little bit younger, 59 years old, mostly female again and married, and the two most common cancers were lung and colorectal. What did they find? They found three categories of challenges faced by family caregivers. The first theme was around communication and teamwork issues. So they commented on how there was inadequate guidance regarding pain management from care team. There was a lack of guidance when patients were discharged from hospital around how to manage the pain. There was also difficulties in communicating with healthcare teams. Sometimes there was stigma being conveyed by healthcare teams around opioid use, pain management, and that was challenging for them. And sometimes there was actually slightly conflicting management plans from oncology and palliative of care. And so it indicated to them that there was inappropriate communication between the care teams. And then again, the pain management plan was ineffective. They weren't fully clear on how the balance of adequate pain relief and the side effects was being managed, and some people were worried about the, the side effects, some people were more worried about the pain relief, and that balance uh, seemed off for them from their perspective. The second theme of issues were around caregiver-related issues. These included emotional distress, again, that lack of knowledge or skills in pain management that was distressing for them, and sometimes they commented on how they had to Google to learn more about how to manage their loved one's pain. There was a physical strain as well around tracking pain medications, how it it was used how to use it safely and then just interfering with other responsibilities that they have around work And then lastly, there were patient-related issues. Again, difficulty assessing their pain levels, reluctance to report pain or take medication. So the caregivers would ask the patients about pain and patients themselves would be reluctant. And then the side effects that the patients would have around using the pain medications. They also commented in the study that female caregivers who were older had lower levels of medication seemed to report more challenges in managing pain. So in summary, this study provided insights into the challenges faced by caregivers around pain management, and therefore, perhaps potential solutions or interventions to alleviate these challenges, perhaps improving communication between healthcare teams and caregivers, more education and pain management training for the caregivers, and then the emotional distress that they did face around offering counseling or support groups. We, as healthcare providers, need to recognize that thing and support the caregivers in managing pain, and be conscious and attentive to this. And this also, again, highlights that there's, again, more research needed around this concept of how caregivers understand what pain management is about and the knowledge of them. My own take as well is around, you know, is there a gap in cancer pain management research that perhaps we have not thought about when we are assessing how good a patient's pain is? And that's around the caregiver involvement and knowledge and comfort. It's not something we usually measure in pain research, and it seems like it does play a role in how patients manage their pain. And then there are other things that I've already mentioned around improved communication, family meetings, and the things I think we tend to do, but perhaps you know, focused on how caregivers' knowledge about pain, tracking meds, all those things are. So I'll stop there and um, invite the panelists for discussion.
1: Thanks, Angaran. I found this interesting. Um... Specifically, I think we take it for granted, this whole area about who's caring for patients. And we don't think, as you highlighted, about what the needs are of their caregivers. So I found it very interesting from that perspective. I've got two questions. And I I looked through the paper, and I couldn't find the answers to this. And maybe I missed them. So I'm wondering if I missed them. The first one was the caregivers were about almost 20 years older than the patients. And I couldn't find what the relationship was. It looks like it was more of a parent. The second question related to who was providing the palliative care because for me it seemed like these were patients who were referred to a palliative care team but was this done at the time of initial referral so they hadn't been seen yet by the palliative care team or were they already under the care of the palliative care team
2: Yeah, it's a good question, Jose. So they did, I believe, comment on how the caregivers tended to be spouses or parents. So I have a feeling you're right because of the parent, the age average rose. So that's probably why they were 20 years on average older than the patients, I have a feeling. I did not actually go look at the other larger trial from which this cohort came from. But they commented on how these are patients who were receiving outpatient part of care but they also commented on different teams commenting on their pain management. And so, I mean, it happens in my place here as well. Certainly the patients are going to ask the oncologists, and some of these patients were inpatient. So they're going to ask their hospitalist internal medicine teams about discharge and pain management. So I have a feeling they are commenting on the other teams as well.
3: If they're at home, they may also be commenting on information they're getting from home care nurses or Pharmacists, or there are a whole bunch of people who could comment.
1: Notwithstanding who it was, what team it was, whether you know it is a oncology team or primary care team or a part of care team, I think this paper really, as I said previously, highlights the importance to make sure that we are informing and educating and supporting the caregivers as well, no matter what our area is, whether it's part of care, as I said, or more generalist.
3: It made me wonder too, like if sort of having caregivers present at appointments wasn't an, enough. I, I wondered if you thought, end, what other like this need for training for caregivers like had you thought reading this article who would be best to provide that or how we would do that? Because the article didn't quite get there,
2: I don't think. No, you're right. I mean, I think that's the other thought I had is there's always this research and we need to do more and more, but we don't have more time direct face-to-face with the patient and their families in it. So to me, it's about prioritizing. And if you do more of one, then we probably have to do less of other things. And that's the part that really I struggle with? And is it general support groups? Is it handouts to be efficient? But maybe just simply even asking the caregiver, how do you think, how do you feel about pain management? Is there any questions you have? How has it been, how have you been dealing with it?
3: There's a, so the question is, was there a description as to which teams provided the stigma of opioid usage in
2: the article? There was just this one sentence about it, and they said they gave an example of a participant experiencing stigma of medication abuse from a provider where the participant believed that because their loved one was perhaps some risk of homelessness, perhaps there was a mention of medication abuse. And that's, that is all the sentence in there was. Um, so I, there was nothing more described about it.
1: Thank you. It's interesting where they indicated they're going to the internet to find information. It reminds me of a study that I did way back in the late 1990s on patients with breast cancer when the internet was just coming on board and they were beginning to look and now You know, 25 years later, there's so much more information. And where are they finding that information? It also reminds me of LEAP. So Pallium Canada actually has got a LEAP Caregivers course. It's a self-learning program available for free for, for caregivers. So that's a potential resource. Let's move over to the next paper, Adrian, or the next article.
3: All right. So this next article is a little bit of a change of pace. It's looking at massage therapy for hospitalized patients receiving palliative care. This article at the beginning illustrates the point that non-pharmacological care is a key element of symptom management in palliative care and that there are more and more studies showing that this is something that patients want and that it's supported by evidence too to improve uh, symptom management. But then they go on to say that implementing services that are non-pharmacological can be challenging in hospital settings. And specifically, they talk about things like interruptions. If someone's in hospital, there are lots and lots of people who are kind of constantly going in the room for different reasons. And so providing an intervention like massage therapy can be challenging. They also mention the timing can be challenging. Sometimes patients may want to receive their massage therapy treatment at a time when a registered massage therapist is not available, I imagine, like evenings or weekends. And then also the obvious funding piece of who's going to fund these non-pharmacologic treatments. They do conclude, however, that therapeutic massage is an effective strategy for improving quality of life and pain control. And so their goal was to kind of delve deeper into what is an effective dosing strategy for massage therapy in hospitalized patients. And so their methods were, it was a prospective randomized three-arm comparative effectiveness trial, obviously not blinded because people knew how long they were getting a massage for. They had three arms. One of them was to receive a single massage of 20 minutes. The second was to receive three consecutive days of 20-minute massages, so it was it 20-minute massage daily. And the third was 10-minute massages daily for three days. The participants were hospitalized patients who are receiving palliative care consultation, who are expected to stay in the hospital for at least four days because two of the arms required them to be there for four days and then get a post-treatment assessment. So the intervention was done by licensed palliative care trained massage therapists. And they spoke about this quite a lot, actually. They felt this was a really important piece that they were specifically trained for palliative care and that each treatment was not standardized for the patients, but was individualized to the patient's symptoms and preferences as well. The evaluation, they collected evaluation data baseline, pre-treatment, post-treatment, and one day post-treatment as a follow-up. And what they used for their primary analysis was a McGill quality of life questionnaire, the single question just asking how is your quality of life. And then they also did ESAS distress thermometer and peace questions as a secondary assessment. So what they found is they had 387 patients participating, which is a very large number, and that 73 to 91% of them received their full allotted interventions. The primary analysis, so this is again the McGill Quality of Life question was only assessed for patients who had both their baseline and follow-up assessments completed. And what they found is that pain improved for 47% of the patients, well-being improved by for 46, tiredness improved, distress improved, and people were very interested in receiving massages again. And so from this primary analysis, they concluded that many participants experienced clinically meaningful change to their symptoms, but that no dosing approach was superior to any other. So there wasn't any significant difference between all these three, the three different arms. So one massage versus three massages or 10-minute massages versus 20 minutes. Their secondary repeated measure analysis showed for distress that frequency mattered more than the massage session duration. So the one session 20-minute massage will had less lasting effect than for the three 10-minute sessions. And that pain they found was actually consistent across all study arms with only short-term improvements found no matter which arm the patients were in. To summarize the key discussion points from the article, they stated that their study was the first to look at dosing differences in massage therapy and palliative care patients. So they kind of predicated this all on the, okay, we've already proved that massage therapy is helpful for palliative care patients. Now we're, we're the first ones to look at dosing differences. They also noted that this is the largest massage dosing study for any patient population, which I thought was interesting. As they identified them, their important findings were that massage had an acute positive impact on quality of life symptoms, well-being, both physical and psychological, and that frequency of the massage mattered more than duration, but that neither one of those mattered significantly for pain improvement. So for for pain improvement, any massage is a good massage, and that there was overall more long-lasting benefit for frequency of massages rather than the duration of one single massage. I found this article really interesting, as they themselves say, kind of beyond the effectiveness of massage therapy for palliative care patients, just specifics of how to implement this, which is really helpful if you're trying to think about yourself in your setting, trying to do something different with a registered health professional who's not a physician.
1: What I really liked about this paper was that it reminds us about the non-pharmacological management of, of pain and other, and other symptoms. I found it intriguing though, in that, as you said, there was, I think there seemed to be an assumption because I looked at the references, but there seemed to be an assumption that massage therapy is helpful. And I think all of us work in clinical care, we, we do see that there seems to be an improvement. Patients find it useful in most cases, at least anecdotally what they tell us. But I couldn't find a large study there that looked at massage therapy versus something else. And I'm wondering within this study, what would have happened if they would put an arm at the risk of putting too many arms in the study but something like, you know, therapeutic touch or Reiki, what would have happened? And then the other interesting thing about this was that the McGill quality of life questionnaire that they used is the one single item one that just says okay. overall, all things considered, how are you feeling? So it didn't specifically look at one or other symptom.
3: That is true. That was their primary objective. They did this very complex secondary analysis using the ESAS oh. for all the symptoms on the distress thermometer, which I have read many times to try to understand it. Better. So, but their primary was just the the quality of life. And I think it would have been interesting if they'd even just had an arm for patients receiving palliative care in hospital who didn't have massage, right? Because that's, I also wondered that, right? These are patients in hospital who are being followed by palliative care. It is possible that their symptoms were improving because of other interventions well, exactly. as well.
1: Yeah, e- exactly. But again, I think the reason why Auditorial we would highlight this is to highlight the importance of non-pharmacological measures as well.
3: I also really liked that it was really not just cancer patients, right? Even in the examples that they give, it was patients who had a ne- necrotizing wound or renal disease. Yeah. Or, and I thought that was really big too.
2: An eighth arm might be around the, just the conversation and the communications because Correct. the presence of a person who is, I'm sure I right. of people is a very effective communicator, that we know as well works well, yeah. isn't it? And so and wonderful. just listening
3: kind of listening really closely to them and asking what they wanted and just kind of attention is really.
1: The two interesting questions and and, and, a, and a comment. So from Golda Trudunsky, I'm wondering how short was the duration of benefit. Did go down slowly over time?
3: I think that's a good question and I don't think that this study assessed that right their only follow-up was the day after the massages ended mm. they went in and did the questionnaires so there was nothing beyond that that they did so I think we don't know
1: And then um, from Lynn uh, Meadows out in Calgary, uh, we can't downplay the importance of human touch as an important contribution to comfort. That's why many elderly women have their hair done. It's the only human touch they receive. Gosh, I was just reminded of that recently by a family member who lives in a small village and said they enjoy going quite often to the Silas because that's the one of the few contexts that they have.
3: I think, as you said, Jose, it would be really interesting to compare massage therapy to other types of touch therapy.
1: So re- Reiki. Yeah, yeah. yeah or or yeah. non-therapeutic you know, like touch, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. So, Ayn I think you back on again for article number three.
2: So the next article is on looking at the caregivers' reports of their own symptoms And this is an interesting study where again, the caregivers are also reporting on their loved one's symptoms. And these are patients living with cancer. And this is an American study and that's why there's a concept of home hospice. So again, we know, we talked about this with my first article, caregivers are very involved in monitoring symptoms uh, for their patients. And the caregiving role itself is often associated with higher levels of burden and psychological distress. And this research looked at how they are interdependent within each other. And apparently this interdependence there article comments on that there's very few studies that looked at this. So this was a multi-site longitudinal observational study of cancer home hospice patients and their informal caregivers. Uh, This was done over three years via the U.S. hospice agency and looked at their last two months of life. The patients themselves were older than 18. They were adults, cancer diagnosis, and they, they mentioned they had a prognosis of one week or more to live, and they had this eligible caregiver. The caregivers themselves were also adults, and they needed to speak or understand English to be eligible so the caregivers completed the demographic data and they provided daily reports of symptoms for the patient and for themselves and this analysis looked at summary of those variables and then they did a lot of symptoms and so they had to group it into sort of three domains looking at patient symptoms caregiver symptoms and caregiver outlook and then they looked at associations and lots of analysis and outcomes over time and especially as death approaches So the key results are that there was, so they ended up with 61 patient caregiver dyads. Most of the patients, the median length of survival was 38 days, so it was pretty close uh, to death. And they found that not surprisingly, you know there was at least one day of moderate to severe symptoms that were reported in the majority of, of the dyads with the top three patient symptoms that were moderate to severe being fatigue, pain and poor appetite. And on the caregiver side, it was a lack of sense of peace, not feeling positive, and tiredness. They found, like I said, there was lots of association analysis that were done. So they found high correlation between patient symptom severity and caregiver distress at of their patient symptom severity, so that's not surprising. They found that the previous course of an individual's positively predicted the next course so if they had high pain, the next time they tended the pain tended to be higher. And then here is where it gets interesting. so the high patient symptoms was actually also positively associated with their own caregiver symptoms. And previous caregiver symptoms, interestingly, was negatively associated with the next report of patient symptoms. If there was a high caregiver symptom about emotional distress, then the patient's symptoms pain Seem to get better, and but when you look at it from a patient perspective, then the outlook of the caregivers uh, got worse as well. So if there was high symptoms from a patient perspective, then the caregivers' outlook about how it's going was worse. Things tended to get worse over time. So the closer they got to death, the symptoms got higher, the caregivers' outlook on things got worse, and those relationships between patient and caregiver symptoms strengthened apparently closer to death. So the summary of key discussion points, I'll get to some of the limitations as well. This is one of the first studies to assess these relationships between caregiver reports of patient and their own caregiver symptoms. The symptoms are high in the last month to two months of life. I think that's not surprising to us. And so we therefore continue to keep focused on symptom management at end of life. It did get worse over time, and therefore, you know, that's they concluded how we should keep Top of the pain, the symptoms earlier and often. And then there's this counterintuitive relationship. I'll mention a the limitation. There's a lot of associations done. So is it just a statistical anomaly? I would I would question that. But they comment on this counterintuitive relationship where the increased caregiver symptoms actually led to better patient symptoms on the next one. And but maybe it's just because the caregivers are working hard to improve their loved ones' symptoms. So their own health deteriorated while their patient's health improved or symptoms improved. Caregivers play an important role in the symptom management and this distress is real. And some of this distress is related to symptom management and them taking ownership of that. Again, links nicely to our first article. Additional thoughts: I mentioned the limitations. You know, we, I wonder about intensity of home care supports. Again, caregivers and how much help they are getting and their own caregivers' help, because that has an influence. It looks like on patient symptoms. Over to the panel for more discussion.
1: Very good, thank you. The question I have around this, and I think you highlighted that, and, and perhaps we need to really emphasize it even more, is the symptoms that were being reported by the family members there was a slightly different profile to the symptoms being reported by the patients, right? So the patients were more around physical symptoms and also some of the psychological symptoms like depression, anxiety. The caregivers one, if I remember correctly, when I reviewed the article was around things like fatigue, sense of peace, anxiety. So I wonder if you just comment more on that, because I think it's as you say, as I think we sometimes perhaps underestimate the amount of work it takes to be a caregiver.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jose. So yes, so the patient symptoms that were reported were the traditional ESAS-like symptoms of, you know, delirium and constipation, nervousness, anxiety. So the physical and psychological. But the caregiver symptoms, you're right, they focused more on the psychological. So it was around trouble sleeping, guilt, Anxiety, depression, fatigue, and then this outlook—they they termed it—and that was a sense of peace about what's happening, um, and then their sense of positivity. And so you're right, uh, Jose, that there's a difference in, in those symptoms.
3: There's a, a question: Did caregivers have support for themselves during this time? Often, the focus is on patient and family and friends disappear. Literature suggests that when social support is perceived to be available, it reduces caregiver burden, um, like the last cigarette in your pocket when quitting smoking. Caregivers are exhausted and have, for a long time, been mourning, but when they're on call 24-7, they can feel abandoned.
2: Yeah, and I don't remember reading about whether there was any like elicitation of the, sub-type, the intensity of supports that they themselves had other than otherwise, but, but it's a good point. I mean, certainly we know that is uh, very much needed and that's where, you know, caregiver respite, more uh, formal healthcare system supports uh, might be helpful. The, the, I also wonder about the number of caregivers, you know, if there's extended family who can relieve each other does that help? But it is something to be mindful of, isn't it?
3: The question in my mind when I was reading this article was very much like for the first caregiver article, like how can we as clinicians better prepare caregivers or how can we care for them better? And I don't know have a good answer. I don't know if you thought of anything while you were reading.
2: As I get older, I try to be blunt about the immense work and burden that is involved in caring for loved ones at being at home and really talk about Therefore, for the hospice, and, like in Canadian system at least, you know, like the, the hospice, residential hospices, the inpatient pad of care units, um, and how those are not a failure uh, on the caregiver's part, they, they, those are needed. And it is okay, because it is a lot of work. And that is not enough home care in today's Canadian health system to really provide, you know, a little bit more than two to three hours, I think the day,
1: isn't it? I think we're facing a perfect storm here. So just on the end of the pandemic, of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we've seen a lot of healthcare professionals dropping out or exhausted or burnt out. And we're seeing in our daily work, the burden being placed on home care agencies, nursing agencies, having to do work with smaller staff numbers, burnt out staff. And then in addition to that, we've got this the phenomenon of exhaustion on the part of the family members. And on top of this all, I think this modern day society, at least in Canada, where families are smaller and smaller, at least in some components of, of the population. And we don't have as large families anymore to look after someone. I'm concerned about the future. I think we need to start coming up with some solutions very quickly. If the preferred place of care most of the time, and we know that there are exceptions and important exceptions is a home or a home type of, of environment, I think it's going to be needed a lot of investment in resources, in, in home care resources and perhaps alternative places of care, things like hospices for end of life, if we are going to try and deal with this storm.
3: I think it might mean kind of, and this relates to a question, and the question and answer, like expanding the, the team of who's involved in, in our community and end-of-life care. The question in there is, is there a place for death doulas to kind of process, to support the whole family in this process?
1: Very good. Thank you. And then with that, the fourth article, which I think, Andy, over to you again.
3: Yeah. This one's completely different. This article is about just-in-time decision-making, And in it, the group presents the preliminary findings of a goals of care rapid response team. So this is from a large cancer center in the US, the University of Texas, MD Anderson. And their key points as as by way of introduction are that goals of care conversations should be part of a continuum of advanced care planning discussions that happen over the course of a patient's illness journey. That to point out again, as is studied elsewhere, that the absence of goals of care conversations and of advanced care planning discussions can lead to care that is not aligned with patients' preferences, goals, and values. So their goal was to try an innovative delivery model for goals of care discussions to see whether this would be something that was feasible or effective. So they created a goals of care rapid response team that was available to all cancer patients. And that was deployed to clarify goals of care for patients who are at risk of requiring higher level care or ICU level care. And they initiated this at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, kind of in anticipation of increased needs, both in the acuity of um, patients, kind of clinical change and in in terms of resources within the hospital. So the aim of their intervention, they wanted to look at three things in the introduction of this team. One was a feasibility assessment to see whether something like this is really possible, like how many of the refer and the way they measured this was to look at how many of the referrals to this team were completed uh, assessments and the adherence of it. So whether all of the disciplines who were supposed to be part of it were participated in it and the efficacy of it, you know, would would care be limited, which is what they hypothesized, that if there were more goals of care conversations, then more patients would request to have limited interventions. Kind of within each assessment, the goal was to promote patient and family understanding of their medical situation and prognosis and treatment options, and to also, secondarily but importantly, to ensure the whole medical team's understanding of what that patient's goals of care are. So the phrase that they used to summarize all of this was that their aim was to offer goals of care, decision support in real time as prioritized by patient need. So these are the methods that they used. Their recruitment in this one center would be, were to look through lists of the patients who had received interventions from the medical emergency team and to lists of patients in ICU who are at high risk of requiring more care, as well as patients in the hospital who were receiving high flow oxygen and bypass. So that was the first part is to go through these lists and identify these patients with these risks and needs. And then they looked to see if they already had an advanced care planning or goals of care note in their EMR. And if they didn't. Then they would put their name forward. Before enacting the intervention, they would always check with the patient's primary oncologist. So these were all cancer patients specifically. And they did not need to have COVID to participate in the study, but they did have to be cancer patients. So again, the intervention was this consultation with this rapid response team, officially within 24 hours. But they said that usually they happened within three to four hours of the referral. The invited participants on this team were from the patient side, the patient, their power of attorney or substitute decision maker and other people who were important to the patient, um, as identified by the patient or their substitute decision maker. As well, from the medical side, the invited participants were the primary medical oncologist, uh, the patient's inpatient most responsible position, depending on their location, the critical care provider, a palliative care provider, and social worker, the ethicist, and the chaplain. And the way they conducted these meetings is that the ethicist led the meetings because they felt that a key component or benefit from this would be was the expert level communication skills. And so they identified the ethic medical ethicists as people who focus on identifying different questions and clarify values. And so they felt they would be very skilled to lead these meetings. And then the palliative care specialists participated in all aspects of the meetings and also provided opportunity for ongoing clinical care, even after that consultation. So the way they assessed the intervention was to do a retrospective chart review for care limitation after the goals. care rapid response team intervention and looking specifically at the change in location to a lower intensity unit, change from a full code status to a DNR status, and whether patients had withdrawals of life-sustaining therapies. So what they found is that if there were 89 patients who were referred. 85% of those referrals went on to receive a consultation. So they felt that this was feasible. And so 89 patients received 95 consultations because some patients had several assessments from the team. I think it was about 15%. And they found that care limitation occurred in 75% of patients. Um, some of the benefits they identified, not necessarily to do with their like specific assessment goals, but they found that this provided extra support to healthcare providers who may not be as comfortable with these acute goals of care conversations. And they also felt that it was beneficial to have a separate team from the palliative care team get the mandatory referral based on the list reviews because this would avoid negative associations for the palliative care team in their function. And of course, they made sure to mention that regular supportive palliative care referrals were ongoing throughout. And this also did not interfere with any existing advanced care planning initiatives within the hospital. So, the findings in a bit more detail, they did find that it was feasible, which they felt because 85% of the referrals led to consultation. They did note that primary oncologists had a hard time getting to last minute meetings if they were, say, in clinic. And also that if there were two meetings happening at the same time, the ethicist often did not make it. You obviously couldn't be in both places at once. And they also did note that this sort of intervention requires a center with quite a lot of resources to be able to deploy this many people. They did also find, again, that it limited care escalation. So, more specifically, 66% of people had a change in their preferred resuscitation status, and only 21% had a change in location or withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments. Treatments. So the discussion spent most of its time talking about further questions that this study raises, some of which that I found really interesting are they this study didn't specifically assess whether this de-escalation is more goal-concordant care. It kind of assumes that within the context of this meeting that the patients were able to express their wishes clearly and that this was understood well, but they identified that this is something that should be studied further. And they also wondered about the reproducibility of it, specifically in settings that may not have quite as many resources in terms of personnel as they did. And they also wondered, this whole intervention is predicated a little bit on the assumption that expert level communication is really important for these discussions, but they think that, you know, perhaps this should be studied to see just how important it actually is. And they also wondered, is the just-in-time nature of this required for it to be an effective intervention? Like, does this team need to be deployed in terms of in times of crisis, or could something like this be effective in, in other times as well?
1: Thanks, Sandy. Maybe I'll get the ball rolling with questions. So I think there's a very important context here for the study, if I understood correctly, and that was, it was undertaken during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right at the beginning. And exactly. And so what I saw was a team being mobilized to help out others that were perhaps also absolutely swamped. was uh, uh, That was a case, wasn't it?
3: Yes, that was their stated. They were anticipating people weren't already swamped, but this was just, my understanding is this was just as the pandemic was starting. They thought, okay, this is going to become a big problem. There are going to be more people in crisis. There are going to be more resources needed for everyone.
1: Because I wonder whether that model would be feasible. They highlighted that it's feasible in a high resourced context such as they have. But going into the future outside of a pandemic under more, if I could say, normal circumstances, whether this model is feasible. In other words, a lot of reliance on a palliative care team and an ethicist to do a lot of those conversations when the attending team, the oncology team, in this case, because it's cancer center, should be having those discussions and undertaking those discussions.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I had the same question, especially they mentioned that most of their conversations actually took place in the ICU. And so, and in my experience, you know, the the physicians working in the ICU are very skilled and used to having these kind of discussions for patients who are in there. So I did wonder, you know, going. I mean, that's what forward. I
1: thought it was. If it was uh, circumstances of the team being swamped. It's interesting because I'm also aware, and one but or two settings. But they still had to that, be there. That's the uh,
3: thing. Correct,
1: c- correct. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm just wondering whether just the nature of the whole pandemic, and you know, many things not known at the time early on, and people getting sick very, very quickly from the from the virus. I was going to say, under normal circumstances, what would have happened where I work, um, and some hospitals that I was linked to. The of care team was kept very far away from the intensive care unit or from the COVID unit. And this paper for me highlighted how the intervention of a team like this actually made a very, very big difference. So I'm just wondering in, in preparation for future pandemics, because there will be. For me, this is an important paper to say, look, there's a role for this team, particularly under, in pandemics where there's significant risk of rapid declining of patients.
3: I think that's one of the things that they highlighted too, is how helpful it was to be involved in this way, because it led to more involvement of palliative care for these patients later. It, it opened it opened the door a little bit to more people understanding the usefulness of that.
2: To, to me, this paper, mm-hmm. I really like this project because one of the things they highlighted was the involvement of a skilled communicator, advanced care planning, without labeling it as part of care, which can be scary. Um, and yeah. so I can see this opening the door in a non-pandemic area. And it doesn't have to be this urgent. They highlighted this within three, four hours, but it doesn't have to be. A lot of the decisions are not critically urgent, where they're talking about feeding tubes and slowly deteriorating. And, and they want somebody like an ethicist, social worker, us, to just talk about the various options and prognosis and illness understanding. And uh, some of my consults right now for part of care is about that, but the part of and- your word I can see being scary, and therefore if you say... We want a consultation from a team who can spend some time reviewing the options and call it the rapid response team or maybe a response team around ACP. And that helps. I, I, I like that idea.
1: I'm good. I think there's no doubt that there's a role for specialist part of care teams to get involved. But I would argue that it's either the more complex situations or cases or where the attending team feel this is outside their comfort zone and they need help. My concern is that very quickly, they can develop a dependency in an organization to refer to the palliative care team and then it reminds me of a paper that was published a few years ago i think the title was something about shooting the messenger where there's a dependency created on the palliative care team and then also the palliative care team experiencing this phenomenon of getting shot at because they're coming in with the bad news because the attending team not initiated palliative care early the concept of a palliative care approach early and then suddenly switch gears in the care very good But thanks very much thanks andy and thanks a- um, Angiran. And thanks to the Palium team for supporting this episode today. Uh, Very quickly, the honorable mention. So these are articles that we found very interesting as well. And amongst the top 10 that we had selected, there's one on palliative care for people who use drugs during communicable disease epidemics and pandemics, a scoping review on access policies, programs, and guidelines. There is another one on psychedelics. And It's more of a position paper or a call for reviewing this and the the whole policies in Canada around um, access to psychedelics for the relief of psychological suffering. There is an interesting paper that looks at pharmacy and pharmacy clinics and their role in palliative care. There is one on early versus usual, which is usually late palliative care consultations in the intensive care unit. And then, lastly, on the theme again of COVID, a paper from the team in Toronto: differences in palliative care provision by primary and specialist providers supporting patients with COVID-19. Before I go, I really need to thank all the contributors, all the people that are monitoring all the different journals, those at McMaster University and Queen's University, the pallium support team, and in future episodes, we're actually going to be broadening the team, so we're going to have colleagues from other universities, including from the University of Calgary, the University of Manitoba. And we've got a colleague joining us from Israel as well, and as well, colleagues from the University of Toronto. So you're going to be seeing a larger editorial team and a larger group of monitors. So until the next one, thank you very much and bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other Palliative Care ECHO Project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone copyright 2012 licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial 3.0 license you can find airtones music at dig.ccmixter.org today's episode was produced by diana vince see you soon